Tom Cheatham, welcome. Thank you. Hi. <laughs> so, Tom, you are the author of four books on the implications of Henry Corbin's work for the contemporary world. You're a fellow of the Temenos Academy in London. Is it Temenos or Temenos? Temenos. Temenos Academy in London and an adjunct professor at the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine. And you lecture regularly in Europe and the United States. And we're up at Sonoma State University with an incredibly sophisticated audience. I must say, yeah. the quality of the questions. And their and persistence. <laughs> just blew me away. I mean, you know, you know, I you know, taught another I used to teach political philosophy at Yale in the 70s. And I got to say, the students were not as good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so you've done uh, four books on Henry Corbin. But let's start with a really simple question. What is the elevator speech on Henry Corbin? Who was Henry Corbin? He was a French theologian and philosopher and mystic, um, one of the most important 20th century scholars of Islamic mysticism. He did lots of work, uh, particularly in Iranian um, Sufism. And he, he was a, a colleague of Jung at the Aranos uh, uh, lectures. He was a professor of the religions of Arabia at, um, at the Sorbonne. He followed Louis Massignon. Um, and he also taught at the University of Tehran in um, Iran for many years until he died in 1978. Um, and his, his major contribution in one sense is, is scholarly in that he oversaw the translation and publication of all sorts of uh, medieval manuscripts, um, which otherwise, well, I mean, he was the first Westerner and the first person to, to show a real interest in, in that tradition and to make sure that those books were, were translated and, and the scholarly work done on them. And his most famous book is? Probably, it's now called Alone with the Alone, published by Princeton University Press. The original uh, title and the sub now subtitle is Creative Imagination in the Sufism of Ibn Arabi. Okay, and Harold Bloom wrote the introduction to, the, uh, he did. to the, that new uh, uh, version, and, and again, Harold Bloom, we were talking over lunch, uh, you know, a very great uh, Yale literary critic, a scholar of Shakespeare, but also um, amazingly prescient in terms of the breadth of his vision and what he considers important. And he considers Corbin extraordinarily important. He, yeah. he compares him uh, to uh, Grissom Scholem, the great Jewish uh, scholar of Jewish mysticism, uh, so he considers him extraordinarily important and has a sense that he simply is not known at the same level, at the level he should be known. Yeah, yeah. Um, I certainly and, agree with him there. Yeah, and, and Corbin, you came to Corbin from uh, an interest in uh, uh, archetypal psychology, uh, the psychology of, of, of James Hellman, and also eco-psychology. So you came yeah. at it uh, both from the green point of view yeah. and the depth post-Jungian archetypal psychology point. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, was, yeah. It, was, it was reading Hillman that uh, was when I first heard of Corbin. And you, you were, a, uh, what, a, a, a biologist, an eco-biologist? Yeah, I was teaching environmental studies at yeah. the time, 
Uh, my, my undergraduate degree was in philosophy, and I don't think that ever it says something about you, and I don't think it ever leaves you. So, the, but but, but um, I, I went on eventually to get a degree in biology. There was something about at least the way that I was doing philosophy that was not very helpful to me. And eventually, I sort of gave up trying to get a graduate degree in philosophy and um, ended up doing biology because that's what grabbed me at the time. Um, and so I was teaching environmental studies and happened upon Hillman's work. Um, and it was, it was reading Hillman's work, I think, that gave me the clue about what it was was wrong in my prior approach to philosophy because I think we were talking about this earlier. You, um, you you were very taken with with archetypal psychology and Hillman, and I just ran across uh, his books in a, in a bookstore in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and looked interesting. I it was oh, it was Thomas More's collection, and I put it on my shelf for a while. And then one day I pulled it down and started leafing through it, and it was just electric. I was doing theoretical biology at the time, actually. And when I picked up Hillman's book, it, it hit me like a shot. This, this is what I've been after all along. And, and the, this was really, I think, the approach, this, I don't want to say psychological approach, because that demeans it, but the imaginative approach to everything, and and the what I had been, I think, trying to do as a student of philosophy was to exercise my imaginative organs, but I was cramped and frozen in ways that I didn't understand, and so it never really worked for me. Mm -hmm. And so let's just take a moment on, uh, just as we did with Corbin, who is James Hillman and what is archetypal psychology? Well, Hillman is a, is a, was, he just passed away a year, year ago or so. Um, he was a Jungian psychologist who was director of the Jung Institute in Zurich for a while, and he was a participant in the Aranos lectures for several years. Uh, then you moved to the United States, and um, I mean, he's widely regarded as sort of a renegade Jungian because he... Uh, is suspicious of the institutionalization of some of Jung's ideas, but 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 he's rooted in Jung's work, um, and so in order to understand where Hillman's coming from, it's pretty helpful to know what Jung's orientation mm -hmm. was. Mm -hmm. Now, did Hillman lead you to Corbin? Yes, it was his 1981 Aranos lecture, "The Thought of the Heart." At, at the time I read that, I'd read quite a bit of Hillman and was extremely interested by it, and very excited by it, and was really being extremely useful to me. And Hillman says in that book um, some things about Corbin which were so uh, enthusiastic. He obviously meant, Corbin obviously meant a great deal to Hillman, and I thought if he said such interesting things about this man. I, I've never heard of him, and I might must find find out stuff, because in order to understand uh, Hillman, I'd, I'd read quite a bit of Jung, and Hillman said, well, 
I mean, really, the, he, he says that Jung and Freud and Corbin are really the three foundational figures for what he developed as archetypal psychology, and I'd never heard of Corbin, so I grabbed his book, Creative Imagination and the Sufism of Ibn Arabi, and that was the end of that. So what is the simplest way to describe the distinction between Jungian psychology and archetypal psychology? Oh, uh, I, it requires being unfair to both of them. Yeah, but just... Um, Jung's psychology is based on the notion of integration of the four psychological functions that he thought were primary thought, feeling, intuition, and sensation. And his overriding concern was the wholeness of the psyche, which he thought was a sort of teleological goal, that there was a wholeness to be had, and that each of us, uh, if things work out, each of us has a a pathway towards becoming our true self, which involves the the integration of all the functions of our psyche. Um, Hillman was... um, somewhat skeptical of that approach to development and in in good postmodern fashion. I mean, if, if Jung is a modernist, then Hillman is the postmodernist. And while he agrees with Jung about the absolute centrality of imagination for every aspect of human life, he disagrees about the necessity for integration. Right. Somebody once told me that Hillman had remarked to him that he loved Jung's psychology, but not his metaphysics. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I, I suppose one way to approach that is to say that... Well, one way to approach that is to say that Jung never, I'm not sure it really answers your question, speaks to your question, but Jung never gave up the idea of being a medical doctor and a scientist. And so he tended to hang on pretty tightly to notions of objectivity and health and uh, therapy, which in fact may have conflicted with his desire to put the imagination at the center of everything. And Hillman had no qualms whatsoever about giving up a scientific grounding, that is, a literal scientific uh, psychological grounding for his psychology. He's perfectly happy to put imagination at the center of everything and give up what he liked to refer to as the literalism of science. Now, you have a website, the Henry Corbin Project, is that? Uh, yeah. Yeah. What is the URL? I think it's the Henry Corbin Project. Yeah, it is. Uh, the, the title of it is uh, The Legacy of Henry Corbin. Right. And, and you, uh, you've written four... So, Corbin really seized you, obviously. Yeah. I've, I've, I've even thought, when I was thinking about the way he seized you, he seized you almost the way an archetype seizes one, no? Yeah. Yes. And, and, and uh, yeah. That, no, that's pretty good because I've never I've never been quite sure what about it. Uh, I, I've been. Because you thought you were complete when you'd written three books, and then you've just written a fourth, right? Yeah. Well, it just keeps coming because yeah. yeah, yeah and now you think you're finished. Well, I think I may be yeah. finished. Yeah. Yeah. But the first book uh, started out as an essay, 
uh, and it became a book. And uh, apparently, you uh, showed it to Hillman, and Hillman was running a press and said, "Yeah, I want to publish it." That's right. Yeah. yeah. So that one is called "The World Turned Inside Out: Henry Corbin and Islamic Mysticism." So, um, and my copy is heavily underlined. But as I take it, this was your effort to simply describe Corbin's work as best you could at that time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. What, what I'd been doing for a number of years was sort of dipping into Corbin's writings, um, which are complex and difficult and confusing and enormously eclectic. Right. Um, and I, I really just, just found that I needed to put it all into some sort of order. So I sat down and um, started sketching out what looked to be some organizing themes. And I started writing, and I thought it was going to be an article that maybe someone would be interested in. But I wrote it wholly for myself, just trying to make some sense out of what I'd been reading. Um, and it just, that's how long it was when I was done with it. And so I sent it to Spring Publications, and Hillman read it and said, it's very nice, and we will publish it. So just to give listeners a sense, the chapter headings, Against the Times, Primordial Space, Primordial Time, and the subheads are the active presence and the great refusal. Then an oriental theosophy, Persia and Mazdaism, the age of Islam, philosophy and theology. Third chapter, modes of knowing and levels of being. Uh, fourth, coming home, the heart and face of the earth. Fifth, the angel and individuation, subtitled the celestial twin and the metaphysics of individuation and so on. Uh, so uh, eight chapters like that, each going uh, really deeply uh, into different dimensions uh, of Corbin's work. But let me just pick almost uh, at random. Uh, chapter 7, The Angelic Function of Beings, there's a section on idols and icons. Uh, what's the distinction between an idol and an icon for uh, Corbin? Well, for Corbin, an idol is any, any image that we see as fixed and opaque that is sufficient unto itself. And this, this, would, be, this would be something f that you might uh, take as a, a fixed and immutable truth. Right. Um, and an icon, an icon can actually be anything. I suppose an idol could be anything that you take as fixed and immutable. But an icon is an idol that you see through. Mm -hmm. And you realize that there's more behind it than the literal face of it. Um, since, since everything is created by God, everything has uh, depth and mystery to it that you don't see at first. Mm -hmm. And your second book was called Green Man, Earth Angel, The Prophetic Tradition and the Battle for the Soul of the World. So how did you, uh, how did you go forward? What is the essence of the effort in Green Man, Earth Angel? Well, I discovered when, by the time, well, I mean, it's, in one sense, it's, it's easy to answer. Um, I discovered not too long after I'd written the first book that there was rather more to say. And I kept, I kept reading Corbin. Um, one, of the, one of the highlights for me for in, in this book the second book is the is the discussion of the of the the, the, the two lights, the, the two kinds of darkness, um, 
that Corban um, uh, identifies as being an explanation for why Nietzsche, in particular, um, thought he had discovered the, the, the nihilistic root of all existence when, in fact, he'd just run up against what the Sufi mystics um, would call a failed initiation mm -hmm. because the black darkness of the abyss that Nietzsche thought he had found at the root of all being is really the black light at the approach to the pole, according mm -hmm. to Islamic mysticism. Mm -hmm. And that was a theme... There's a few others in here as well, but that was a theme which is just central to Corbin's thought, which I hadn't touched on at all because I didn't know about it in mm -hmm. the first book. But doesn't Green Man also refer to Kadir? Yeah. Okay. Who is Kadir? Louis Massignon, it's, it refers, it's, there's an episode in Surah 18 of the Quran in which Moses is, is, is initiated into the mysteries of predestination. So, Kadir is the figure who is the, the initiator of Moses himself, which is a pretty big deal, because Moses is one of the major prophets. But Moses is a prophet who comes to give a law, whereas Kadir is someone who shows you what goes beyond the law, shows you the mysteries that lie beyond in addition to the laws. And um, the, the name... Louis, according to Louis Massignon, it means um, the, the, green one, the green man or the verdant one. Um, and the themes of um, greenness, which have, which have implications for um, you know, how we view the, the angel of the earth, are, are central to this book. And, and the green man is distinct from the earth angel? Yeah, though it's through contact with the green man that one is, learns to be able to contact, to, to, to perceive the angel of the earth. And is the angel of the earth the same as the soul of the earth? Yeah, for all intents and purposes. Okay. And so earlier in the conversation today, one of the participants, uh, a very able uh, participant actually was, spoke of the, that the soul of the earth is dying. And that was just a very strong... Was that a, um, was that a point of view that, uh, that Corbin held? Yeah, well, in the sense... Yeah, in, in the <clears throat> sense that not so much the, the soul of the earth is dying, but, but the, which, which may be true, but that... In the first place, we're, we have become unable to see it. To see the soul. Yeah. 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 But Hillman uh, actually is, uh, I mean, one of the beautiful things about your work and Hillman's work is that you both take the environment seriously. You, know, you both take ecological reality seriously. That's something Carl Jung did not do, right? I mean, he took the global problematique seriously. He took, you know, sort of the destruction. He was in the middle of yeah. World War II and so on. But he was not centrally concerned with the ecological crisis. Whereas it seems to me that both you and Hillman address... Well, yeah, I mean, that's partly for historical reasons. Yeah. It simply hasn't come to people's consciousness. To you right. know, when, right. I, mean, I mean, he certainly lived long enough so that right. it could have, but it wasn't right. central to his focus. Though, though in, in defense of Jung, uh, his, his work seems to me to be perfectly consonant, consonant with, with, with yeah. ecological yeah. Yeah. consciousness. Right. 
Now, your third book, uh, a remarkable book called After Prophecy, Imagination, Incarnation, and the Unity of the Prophetic Tradition, Lectures for the Temenos Academy. Uh, how did uh, After Prophecy build on the first two books? Well, again, the point is that there were things about Corbin's work that I kept discovering, mm -hmm. and I hadn't, I, some, wasn't so, I mean, again, I, I wrote all these for myself in right. the first instance. You were trying to work it out. I was trying to work this out, and his, his, I don't want to call it a system, but his, because it isn't, he's not a systematic thinker uh, in any real sense of the word. He's, he's too eclectic. Um, but his vision of things is so rich and so complicated. Um, not only would it be difficult to summarize it in a reasonably short book, but I, I think it takes many years to become familiar enough with it to see where the centers are. And every time I, I wrote a new essay or collected them in a new book, I saw new centers. It may have been things that I'd recognized before but hadn't seen as central. And for years, it was, it was sort of a stock joke that, that everything in Corbin was central, <laughs> which is sort of true. Um, in, in this book, uh, particularly the, the notion of mystical poverty was, was something that's, that's, that's crucial for his understanding of what it means to be a human person. And I hadn't brought that out, I thought. So, say a little more about mystical poverty. It's such a key notion. It has to do with the fact, as we were saying earlier today, that unlike Descartes' claim that um, I think, therefore I am, for Corbin, I am because I am thought by another. Um, and what his, his approach to the human person is, has, is sort of counter to any ego psychology which would attempt to build and strengthen the ego. It's rather a mystical, mystically tinged attempt to undo what we think of as our, as our self, our carefully guarded uh, and defended self, to open ourselves to the influences of what he often calls our heavenly twin, um, who's the other half of the human person. And now, is our heavenly twin the, the angel that each of us has? Is that the sense of what the heavenly twin is? Yeah, and, and it's, it's actually, yes, that's right. In order to understand what he means by the angel as a heavenly twin, you have to realize that though he was a mystic and a monotheist, he was he's quite clear in saying that any experience you have of this of transcendence or 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 vision of of god is not in truth a vision of god because god is perpetually hidden the only visions that you can have exalted or not of divine transcendence will always be very partial and inherently particular and individual to you. So the paradox of monotheism is that the one God can only appear in multiple individuated and individuating manifestations. So those, each of us has an angel. 
Though each of us has an angel, and God appears to each of us in a unique way. As that angel. And, and didn't Ibn Arabi also say, not only does God appear to each of us differently, but he never appears to the same person the same way yeah. twice? Yeah. Yeah. So that there's this constant re-experiencing and deepening, or hopefully deepening, of one's relationship with that divine spark, which is both within us yeah. and has its twin. Uh, and so coming from there for a moment, because this goes to the key question that you've wrestled with and that your website is devoted to, which is the imaginal realm in uh, Jung and Hillman and uh, Corbin, which is really the heart of the whole thing, isn't it? Yeah. yeah okay. It and so let's try to wrestle with that for a minute again, being unfair to all three, but but yeah. let's uh, going with our colleague here who wanted to really get to the simple notions, which I I agree uh, uh, are are so important to get to. Let's try to say how Jung understood the imaginal realm, how Corbin understood the imaginal realm, and how Helm understood the imaginal realm. What what sort of compare and contrast? What were the distinctions, if you could put it as simply as possible, uh, among those three uh, visions of the imaginal world? Well, for Jung, the imagination is completely central. We, Jung's a bit of a complicated case because he's, he's, he's pretty inconsistent. Sometimes the scientist and the Kantian in him takes over, and other times a pure imaginal psychologist takes over, so, so he's not always consistent, but, but he's, he's at least most of the time consistent in that we are, in claiming that we are always in psyche. And so imagination is the primary way, and imagination is the primary way in which the psyche uh, functions by producing images, and that all we ever really know are images. But what characterizes Jung's vision of imagination as a therapeutic technique is what he called active imagination, in which you don't just passively dream or passively have visions, but you actively engage with the persons in those dreams or visions um, quite consciously. And it's a process of bringing uh, unconscious contents into consciousness by engaging in active imagination. Mm -hmm. So it's a therapeutic technique, first and foremost. Um, Corbin shared the Jung's sense that imagination was absolutely central, but his thrust is, is, is spiritual, religious, and psychological and, 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 and theological through and through. And, and Jung was always reluctant to say, for instance, of, a, of an image of God that, well, it proves that God exists. Because he always said, well, I'm a scientist, I'm a psychologist, I don't know what these images mean, any transcendent referent I, I, I have to remain mute about. I'm just a, I'm just a, a humble doctor. And Corbin is a theologian and a mystic and a philosopher, and for him, the reality of the spiritual world, the, religion, the reality of religious visions, simply far overrode any lingering sense one might have that these were, in any sense, merely psychological. For Jung and Corbin both, though, there's, a, there's an overriding um, 
metaphysic, they're both quite different, um, which organizes their, their understanding of the imagination. For, for Jung, it's, 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 it's sort of, a, it's, it's the image of integration, that you should integrate your unconscious and conscious contents and your various functions of, the, of, 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 your, of your psyche um, in order to become whole. Corbin's less worried about becoming whole than he is about transcending the conditions of, of, of historical life. So his motion, unlike Jung's sort of circular motion, Corbin's thrust is, is generally speaking, vertical. And Hillman, in good postmodernist fashion, doesn't care about any of those overriding uh, uh, metaphysics or, or schemas, and he's perfectly happy to live, as he likes to put it, um, in a three-ring circus where nothing, there is no center, and we shouldn't worry about defending the integrity of, of or the unity of the ego or the self in any sense, and just let everything rip. Mm -hmm. In fact, Hillman actively opposed the imperialism of the ego. He was yeah. not, he was not interested in a, in a form of self-improvement or. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, and, and in a sense, in a sense, Jung wasn't either because he did say famously that any any but Jung victory. But was a therapist. But he wasn't. Well, yeah, but so was Helmut. That's true. They just their goals for therapy were rather different. I mean, and 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 who knows why, for you know, good practical reasons, mm -hmm. what kinds of. Patients they had, who, what kind of people were attracted to them, but but Jung Jung clearly was working for the integration and the wholeness and the unity, and I, you know it's hard not to it's hard not to think of of, of, of metaphors of of calm and simplicity and and and. Balance balance would be a good metaphor to apply to to what Jung was generally after, whereas uh, sort of can. Continual unbalance would be what Hillman was the was trickster. After. He was absolutely the trickster, where 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 Jung was the wise old man. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. So your fourth book, All the World, uh, uh, an Icon, Henry Corbin and the Angelic Function of Beings, and really for new readers, it almost seems to me this is the book they should read first because it represents your mature thought about uh, about Corbin and these issues. And it's a most extraordinary uh, piece of work. But it focuses around this concept of Tawil. Yeah. So what is Tawil? It's a term that Corban borrowed from Shiite Islam, which, which, is, which is spiritual hermeneutics. Hermeneutics simply means interpretation, but it, it is the, 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 the baggage that comes along with that term in both Islam and, and in Christianity is it's hermeneutics of a text, mm -hmm. that is, interpretation, looking for the true meaning or the deep meaning or the multiple meanings mm -hmm. of, a, of sacred scripture, though, though um, it, it goes far beyond that in the Abrahamic religions when you realize that... Uh, in all these religions of the book, God speaks the world into existence. So in a sense, and Corbin is quite explicit about this, everything in creation is a text which is open to interpretation. So as you did this work, over how many years have you been working on this? Oh, about 20. 20. So what happened to you as you did this work? <laughs> um, what happened to your 
not only your map of self, but I could say the same thing for myself if I were to speak of myself, but how were you transformed by what was not simply an academic study in any sense, but really uh, you were drawn to uh, devote 20 years of your life to a, a mystic with yeah. a completely transcendental vision. And I'm really interested in what happened to your vision as you encountered Corbin. Uh, well, I, th I mean, it's, you're looking for something short and... Well, I'll give you a little more space. Give me a little more space. But actually, this might be, this might not be that hard. I, I like to think, I became more conscious. It wasn't just Corbin, I was working with Jung and with Hillman and mm -hmm. other people helping me working through Jung and Hillman and Corbin. But I slowly became more conscious of what Jung calls the complexes. Um, and I became, I think, uh, less of a literalist, uh, less apt to search for stable, fixed truths, um, less of a fundamentalist in some really broad sense. I, I, I like to think, I mean, in one sense, you know, not... I'm not a mystic, Corbin was, I'm certainly not, uh, and, and that's not necessary. All I think one might hope for is to become a little more liquid, a little more, and by, by that I guess I mean perceptive, and not just of, of the soul of the world, but more, more importantly of, of other people in your life. So when you say you're not a mystic, which is fascinating that a non-mystic would choose to devote 20 years to one of the great mystics. In other words, I'm a what? Mystic, I'm a mystic wannabe. <laughs> well, that's a big deal. Um, but, but, but what I mean by that is I don't think I ever had any conscious in, intent to have a mystic vision. Um, but what slowly does, it seems to me, happen to you with sufficient work is the world does become a little more transparent. Um, and less difficult to get along in. This is very practical stuff. That's why I say I'm not a mystic. Um, I suppose there's a part of most people who would sort of like to do the transcendence and get out of this crazy, chaotic mess. Um, and and that, that hasn't happened. That's not my intent uh, studying Corbin. But what, well, I guess what attracted me about his putative mysticism is that it makes the, his vision of reality makes the world so much bigger, so much more alive, and so much more interesting than mine had ever been. Mm -hmm. Now, you, you spoke of uh, Corbin's uh, vertical mm -hmm. ascent that, uh, that he, you know, if Jung took a circular path, that Corbin's view was he, he wanted to move upward to, he was, and help me understand if, if I have this right, for, isn't it true that for Ibn Arabi and, and this Mali Sufi tradition that uh, Corbin so, uh, found so powerful, that the imaginal realm 
is a place where our prayers and intentions kind of go up to it, and that which we seek comes to meet us. That is that from the angelic realm, we are met in the imaginal realm by real hierarchies of angelic well, real power. beings, yeah. By real beings. Real, real being, yeah. Whereas for Jung, he remained agnostic as to whether the independent functioning of the archetypes, which he accepted, yeah. were an intrapsychic phenomenon or in collective unconscious a projected collective. Yeah, yeah. Or he was, he, he was, he didn't, as you said, he, he remained, he, he took the position that he had to be agnostic as to whether they had an independent function outside of intrapsychic functioning. Yeah. And that seems to me to be, uh, I mean, we were talking about this over lunch, and, and you said that more and more you were just interested in practical, everyday things. But to me, it remains one of the most profound epistemological questions as to whether the angelic entities, the archetypes, whatever we want to call them, do have independent existence outside of intrapsychic or collective unconscious functioning, or whether uh, they are simply a projection from within our psyche. See, I'm inclined to, this is going to sound too facile, but I'm inclined to think, I'm inclined to think that's a category mistake, and I'm inclined, I'm inclined to think that, that having those problems is 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 uh, a, a mistake of, of language and Wittgenstein's Now help me, help me with that. Why is I it mean, a in the, I'm not sure I can tease this out right now, but it seems to me it could be a vestige of Jung's Kantianism and his literalism and his scientism. Mm -hmm. You know, he's still, in those moments when he's asking those questions and puzzling over those things, he's not taking seriously his own claim that we are always in psyche. Mm -hmm. but, he has to, but he's a psychologist, and so sort of by default, He's already made this cut between psyche and world. But see, Corbin occupies a theological universe where you don't have to do that because it's all imagination. And the, you know, a rock is, is the imagination of God, and we can't, generally speaking, make them up by imagining them, though we can make up other things like iPhones and whatnot mm -hmm. by imagining them. Um, but but for the, from the, for in, the, in, the, in the cosmology and metaphysics that, that Corbin simply assumes is true, just don't have that problem because it's all imagination. It's but it's grounded in it's grounded elsewhere. It's mm -hmm. grounded in God, mm -hmm. and so 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 there are it's a it's a sort of boundarylessness in Corbin's. You see, Corbin doesn't have to worry about that cut between psyche and reality that, mm -hmm. that is such a problem with him because it's just not there for him. Mm -hmm. So, what did you learn from the process of writing the new book, All the World an Icon, really, the Henry Corbin and the Angelic Function of Beings? What did you learn from this experience that was a step beyond the previous three books? Well, one of the reasons that I wrote this book um, was because yet there was yet another thing that called to me, um, which I had not done, which was to look carefully at the uh, Corbin's early. Um, essay on cyclical time, and right now I can't exactly remember why it was that I thought that was important. Maybe it was because I was looking into Charles Olson, who, who was interested in the poet, Charles the poet Charles Olson. Yeah, it's extremely um, 
uh, deeply affected by Corbin's work later in his life, and he saw the cyclical time essay as just an extraordinary piece, and I thought, you know, I've never suffered through that. It's a very difficult, not very well-written um, essay by Corbin, and I thought, I, you know, I really ought to I really ought to do a hermeneutic. I ought to do an exegesis of that piece. And it was like pulling teeth because it's very hard to read. But I, but I, I knew Cor at that, by then I knew Corbin well enough to sort of knew, know what kinds of moves he would be making and to go ahead and make them in spite of him, even though he, he didn't do it very well himself. And so by the time I really worked carefully through that line by line, I essentially rewrote it for, for as, the, as a couple chapters in this book, and everything just fell into place. And it was really kind of a moment of completion because this is a, quite an early essay by Corbin, and I thought it's all right there. And I'd never read it because it predates some of the other big books. And I, I just never—I knew the piece was there, and I'd read it, but not very carefully because it is awfully dense. And, and I think what, it, what one discovers is that is that this extraordinarily complex and rich um, cosmology was pretty much in place in his psyche very early in his maturity as a scholar. And the, and the other reason that it was worth doing is that I had not spoken very much about the strong Zoroastrian influences in all of Corbin's work. And this essay um, uh, is, is, is front and centers uh, Zoroastrianism and Ismailism. So let's take the, both of those points, but let's start with the second one, the Zoroastrian influence on Corbin. Uh, let's start with the obvious question for listeners. Who was Zoroaster and what, how did uh, Corbin uh, uh, interpret uh, his tradition uh, in a way that was powerful? Well, Zoroaster was a Persian prophet um, um, from long ago. I don't remember the dates, but were quite ancient, uh, contemporaneous with, uh, with with Judaism prior to that, even. Um, but but characteristically Persian, and and there there are still Zoroastrians around, though not too many. And their primary um, symbol is a fire altar. So mm -hmm. flame and light and illumination are 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 primary metaphors for the Zoroastrians. Um, and, and that's very important. Um, that's a very important symbol for Corbin all, all through. Um, and he saw a extremely important world historical place for Persian, particularly Persian um, religion and philosophy, uh, as a sort of middle ground in a way between the cultures of the Far East and the Western religions of the book. And he classes um, the, the Avesta of the Zoroastrians as one of the prophetic books in the, in the tradition of the peoples of the book. And his work during the Second World War when he was in Istanbul um, waiting out the war on, on the Persian mystic Shurvardi is, is central to his vision of everything because it was Shurvardi, who was a, a, a 12th century, I think, uh, Islamic mystic from Persia, who saw himself as trying to reconcile the Zoroastrianism of ancient Persia with the modern, um, relatively modern um, uh, religion of Islam. Wasn't Shurawardi called the prophet of light or something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. 
Prophet of Illumination. Right. This is all so Shirwadi and Ibn Arabi are the two central figures for Corbin. Yeah, and, and Shirwadi even more so. Yeah. More, more than Ibn Arabi. Right, right, yeah. right. Um, so the, uh, the depth that you've gone into in this work um, is extraordinary. And, and it's fascinating to reflect on why it is that you know, the Hindu tradition is such a powerful meme. The Buddhist tradition is such a powerful meme. The Judeo-Christian Abraham, Abrahamic faiths are very powerful meme. And then here you have this incredible faith tradition of, um, uh, of the Zarathustrian tradition in, in Persia. And somehow, as a meme in world historical religious sense, it has not fared well uh, in comparison to the other memes. Perhaps because of the Islamic, uh, you know, uh, the development of Islam, which really... Yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, displaced. you know, sure, Vardy didn't get a lot of traction, I guess, and, right. and his attempt to, to reconcile ancient Zoroastrian mm -hmm. religion with, with Islam, the Corban thought he was successful. Mm -hmm. One of the things that fascinated me that I mentioned to you over lunch is that the Ismali community in the world today is a fascinatingly sophisticated community uh, headed by the Aga Khan. Uh, he has a foundation called the Aga Khan Foundation that a friend of mine worked for. Uh, and it's an, actually there's a large Ismali uh, community in the Bay Area. And it's a remarkably successful, globally dispersed uh, Islamic uh, community that perhaps because of its being persecuted for mm -hmm. its views uh, developed a resilience and a sophistication so that the foundation has done extraordinarily effective work in Asmali communities around the world. Not just for the Asmalis, but the intention of the foundation is to build those communities for everybody where Asmalis are present. And so the question I asked you was that I wondered whether the, how to put this, the underlying sophistication which I see in Ibn Arabi, and I see it in Islam in general. I mean, to me in the West, we say, you know, Judaism is important, Christianity is important, but in the West, there's a kind of a discounting of yeah. Islam as, as a lesser dispensation. Yeah. But if you look at it in terms of the evolution of religious or spiritual consciousness from Jewish monotheism to you know, the Christ being as an emanation of love, and then somebody comes along and says, you know what? There have been prophets in all the traditions, and they all have validity. And, each, and, and you know, so the light went up, and it came down into all these different traditions, and we can honor them all. And of course it says, you know, uh, and Muhammad was the final, you know, prophet. Right. But nonetheless, this honoring of all the traditions in terms of the evolution of human consciousness is a major step. Yeah. And yeah. then if you take Ibn Arabi as one of the foremost examples, one of the greatest of the Islamic mystics, and Corbin as championing Ibn Arabi, uh, and the Ismalis as an expression of this, I've wondered whether their... Uh, their success as an actual community was a reflection of the mind map, spirit map that they held 
which enabled them to negotiate in a postmodern world of, of great diversity. I, I can't knowledgeably comment on that, but there's one thing that does occur to me, whether it has any um, bearing on that, I'm not sure, but Corbin would always point out about the Shiites that, uh, that their, their position as a, as a minority, this applies doubly to the Ismailis, um, position as a religious minority was actually pretty good for them because then they weren't in political control. And the problem with being politically successful is that um, then you have to compromise your ideals. I, mean, I don't really mean that, you know, necessarily. But 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 the the you've got to do you've got to do political things which require you to operate in the world as if you had the truth. Mm -hmm. And for Corbin, one of the nicest things about uh, Shiism and Ismailism is that their principles remain perpetually hidden. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem for someone who wants to act politically in the world um, because politicians have to provide plans and have truths. And, uh, but, but from a theological and a spiritual point of view, you don't want, Corbanwood has certainly said, you don't want to literalize and make public your, your principles because then you, they'll get institutionalized and while institutions can be useful socially, they're very destructive in religious terms, he thought, because religious experience is always essentially individual and is never a public um, phenomenon. So, so, so he, was, he was arguing that if you wanted to have a, a vibrant and lively um, uh, spiritual community, it probably shouldn't have political mm -hmm. power. Yeah. I mean, he was, he was thinking of the Catholic Church in right. the Middle Ages and all the problems that came with that. And that's a very ancient uh, uh, dilemma, yeah. isn't it, between yeah. being active politically and not. Uh, I want to ask one more question and then open it up to the extraordinarily sophisticated audience that we have here. But uh, you mentioned that perhaps, uh, perhaps, uh, the archetype of Henry Corbin, you didn't use that word, that's my word, may have finally relaxed its hold on you enough so that you can move on to other things. Do you have some sense of where you may be going? Oh, um, uh, well, Corbin keeps showing up, but in a little bit of a different way. One of the one of the themes that's been going on for the last 20 years on and off is, is the writing of poetry on my own part, um, which I find to be a form of what Jung called active imagination. And it fits very neatly with Corbin's uh, 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 hermeneutics of the text. And so in, in, some, in some other life, my, my goal would not to be a philosopher or a biologist or an or a expert on Henri Corbin, but simply a poet. Um, and poets aren't universally wonderful people, but uh, I mean, more than any of us are. Um, but it seems to me that much of what Jung and Corbin and Hillman and I are talking about is simply assumed to be true by all sorts of practicing poets, and they just go out and they create things. And I would like to do that. 
But of course, Corbello let me alone. So one of the poets who, I, who I've been paying a lot of attention to lately, um, as a poet, but also uh, as, a, as, a, as a scholar, is, is, is Charles Olson, who, of course, was very interested in Henri Corbin's work. And I, there's a part of me that just can't give up the idea that you could learn a great deal, not in an academic, scholarly sense, but you could, you could get a lot of personal development about, out of carefully comparing these Corbin and Olson, who were two wildly different personalities, and I might work on that. You know, I mentioned to you that I'd done a uh, new school uh, set of conversations with Brother David Steindlrass, this great Catholic uh, mystic, extraordinary man in his 80s now, the successor to Thomas Merton in the view of many. And he has a lovely line about poetry. He says that, that there are some experiences that only poetry can carry the freight, no. that, that it cannot be put into, you know, you know other... And I, the more and more I think about it, I, I was taking a walk with a friend of mine the other day, and I said to him, the more I think about it, that there are these spiritual approaches to life, there are these literary and artistic approaches to life, there are these scientific approaches to life. Uh, we could name others, you know, they're sort of physical, this, that, and the other. But what is common to the deepest truth of all of them seems to me an encounter with awe, an encounter with the numinous, and that it doesn't really matter which of yeah. these trajectories you take. The question is, can you listen deeply enough to uh, what Hillman calls the, the acorn that's developing within you? Can you listen deeply enough so that that path takes you to that encounter with awe? And it really doesn't matter which one it is. It's just a question of paying attention. It's just a question of paying which attention. Which is extraordinarily yeah. difficult. Yeah. yeah. So let's open this up for a few questions. We've got uh, 15 minutes left. Uh, if you can keep your questions concise, we can do more with them. Did I do a good job of getting to simplicity for you? <laughs> we, we pushed Tom hard with it, but you know, that was the goal. So questions, comments? Uh, yes, right back there. Say your name, please. Arantxa. Yeah. Um, it's not really a question, it's more a comment. Well, two comments. Um, you um, um, my comment was to Jung and how um, he's being portrayed here more as a scientist. And uh, I met up with Dr. I suppose I just wanted to point out that he was a Yeah. Um, in the language you're using, he would be calling his yeah. Can you repeat the question? Um, you know, she just wanted to, to point out that, that I've mentioned that Jung was a scientist and, a, right. uh, and that he therefore probably had some of these problems, but that he was, in fact, profoundly religious yeah. and, 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 and something of a mystic himself, which I wouldn't dispute for a minute. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, in particular, you said that um, you call him an agnostic. Uh, well, he does see, he's so complicated, he does that. I mean, you can certainly find places in, throughout his writings where he says, where, where he is asked. You can also find the, the opposite. But, but it's, it seems to me, and, and, and I think uh, Sean Dasani would, would agree with this because I'm, I'm pretty sure it's what he's written in his book. I mean, he could never quite get rid of that desire to be um, accepted by the scientific community. I agree, but I think that was 
basically because he wanted other people to get to the point Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but he really, I mean, there was a very famous interview towards the end of his life. Oh, sure. And he was asked, do you believe in God? Yeah. And he said, I don't believe in God. He says, no, I don't believe in God. I know. I know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I yeah. know that exists. So, um, in that respect, I just felt there was too much of a separation between him and Carvan, and they're not that we're very close. Yeah. Carvan uh, wrote a wonderful essay on Jung's book, Answer to John. Yeah. Just, you know, religious book. Yeah. And this was a religious essay. And it was clear that Corbin has the highest regard. Oh, yeah. They're very close. There's also a letter of appreciation with him by him to Corbin, uh, which is published in French, in the Friends of Henry Corbin yeah. website. Yeah. And there you can really see the deep understanding between these two men. No, extremely I, close mysticism. Yeah. I just love the level of sophistication of this group of people. It's really astonishing. Thank you for that. Yeah. Other comments? And, yeah. Yes, thank you. Yes. Thank you for that. Yeah. Sure. Please. Uh, Say your name, please. Uh, Johan Kroll. Yeah. Um, I have been struck by the, um, the, the writers of the imagination and uh, the importance they are putting on images. But um, I've been perplexed to, to see that, um, that words play so much of a role and actual images hardly. For Jung, there's the mandalas and paintings which he did. And I think for Corbin, there's less importance of actual images, at least in his books. And for Hillman, none. I have not encountered any photo painting in any of Hillman's work. Maybe he. So um, maybe it is our tradition to be more comfortable with words. So when we talk so much about imagination and images, why is why are actual images um, have such a relative little importance in this tradition? Well, it occurs to me to say uh, for, of Hellman that, I mean, I mean, he's a very wordy guy, for sure. Uh, I mean, he wrote a lot, quite eloquently, I thought. Um, but he's often, I mean, he, for, for many years, he was a practicing therapist, and people brought him dreams all the time. And a lot of his work with the dreams would be linguistic work. But it would also be work on, on the image, on feeling the image and imagining the images and, and, and remembering the images and developing the images. I mean, images of snakes and images of, of mud and images of clouds. And, and, and so, 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 so I, I'm not... And then, then you know, late in life, he, he married Margot McLean, who was a visual artist. I mean, they, they did the book together, the, the Dream Animals, and her, her paintings are fantastic, and he wrote little essays to go with each of them. So, so he did do that, and maybe he just assumed that, that all, that maybe the, the wordiness of his writing is, is a compensation for all the clinical hours he spent working with images with, <laughs> you, you know. But I'm a wordy guy, too, so, so it shouldn't, and, and my images are always most easily brought out by, by words. The images are there. But I work with them with words, so that would be a that would be you know the reason that anything I would say about images would be very wordy. 
We got three comments. Mr. One, Mr. two, three. And, and what we'll do is we'll take the comments and then uh, ask Tom to respond to them together. Please. Just to follow up on that, I think that um, in defense of Hillman, uh, the city was an image. Money was an image. Yeah. Um, although that's Sardello, but uh, still, and yeah. all of the life was an image. And I, I want to move back to um, the importance of thinking in metaphor. Um, and metaphor are words, but they're images, and they're, in order to become metaphor, they have to be embodied. So yeah. um, it, it just seems to me that he, he really focused on enlivening what, um, seeing them as images, but enlivening them um, enlightening what was dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point to contemplate that you raise because, I mean, we could be having lectures about, I don't know, Cy Twombly or, or pick your favorite, you know, visual artist or dancer or, you know, and, and it's perfectly plausible to, you know, to, to, to imagine. We, we, we don't do it, but it's perfectly plausible to imagine, as, as George Steiner says somewhere in one of his books, a world in which there are no critics and there are no commentators. There's just poetry and art and music, and the best commentary on a piece of art, would, a sculpture, would be another sculpture, and the best commentary on a piece of music would be another piece of music, and the best commentary of a poem would be another poem, or an epic would be another epic, or a dance would be another dance, and just get rid of critics and commentators. And let, so, so there would be the wordy people, and there would be the painting people, and there would be the sculpture people, and, and we don't, in fact, do that. It's a very wordy culture. I mean, we're very logocentric, according to some philosophers. I certainly am. But, but but the point that you were both sort of talking about is there are other ways to respond to images besides in words. And that's really important to recognize because some people work much better in clay or dance or music or than, than in words. And, and that's their form of active imagination. Or, 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 or architecture, I'm thinking that too. You know, best response to a building is another building. I'm going to try to get as many people as we can. You're next. Hi. So um, I, just to comment on what we're speaking to, I started the morning before we came in uh, speaking with my philosophy professor, and he brought up Dennett's work on mm -hmm. in Consciousness Explained and how he spoke of, spoke to word being a, the, the first, uh, the first uh, form of consciousness. And my sense is that, being a, a visual artist, that... Um, that there's a, a karmic pre, uh, predisposition to whether one is um, a, an image person or a, a, a language text, textual person. For me, myself, uh, image comes first, um, language comes second. Um, and my sense is that it's, it's a personal thing. Um, I, and I just need to see that. Let's, let's hold comments for a minute and gather some more. Yes. Yes. If. Um, I just want to real quick on the helmet as well. I don't want to go too far. Right. But what we were talking about with metaphors and so forth, I think what, personally, working with Hillman is he doesn't give the picture because it, it would almost make it stagnant. This is what he sees. And what he's doing, I mean, he considers it what he says, Egola, is the spirits that rise from the underworld, from um, the Odyssey and so forth. Um, and he's evoking imagery. So by him giving an image, and as a wordy person, I think it would be too easy 
Mm -hmm. It's making you actually, yeah. you know, use the metaphor and cross that bridge or cross that bridge. Thank you for that comment. And let's just get, yes, there. Um, yeah, you mentioned um, the religion and the idea of the, the risk and the dangers it has when it's being publicly um, expounded upon, I guess, and uh, expressed in a public way when the risk of being institutionalized. Um, do you feel that there are any risks or dangers with putting in spirituality and exploring consciousness into the institutionalized program of psychology in terms of the hierarchical levels of its relation with government and mass uh, you know, communications and what have you? Do you feel like there are risks in bringing in this type of personal pilgrimage? Um, into the institutionalized uh, subject and academia Well, it's hard to do without getting in trouble. Um, I mean, there can be, I mean, it's hard for me to respond to that. Um, there, there can, there can be a, I, yeah, there can be a conflict because we're, I don't know, again, you always puzzle me. I'm not sure I'm answering your question. I feel like I'm not. But, but one, the, 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 the idea would be that any institutional structure tends to, to squash and devalue the, the, the private, the, 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 what then becomes private, personal experience of the units that are under the aegis of the institution. And, and, and it happens, I mean, it happens in academia, it happens in politics, it happens in churches, it happens across the board. It's what Corbin was so adamant about. Um, on the other hand, you can't let it happen. So you have to keep pushing up from below and saying, and that was, that was what Corbin saw his life's work to be about. He's saying, no, 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 don't let the institutions have hegemony, you know? I mean, you've got to. Is that, is that answering your question at all? I guess I just had just, I, it's something I, I get concerned about here and there is, is there a people are becoming more comfortable with their spirituality and writing articles and, and writing books and making all this information so public and open to interpretation. Oh. And, oh. you know, getting it almost, you know, a lot of these things are, especially with college students or the college environment, having this information funnel into, you know, for example, psychology's historical role in advertising and manipulation mm. of consciousness. Mm. So something as mm. precious as mm. religion and personal yeah. and oh. spirituality, yeah. oh, well, I, I, getting that into that same category of commodity. I'm, I'm, I'm still not quite on your wavelength, but, but one thing that worries me, I have a colleague who, who teaches a course called Bread, Love, and Dreams, and the students flock to it. It's a little school, but they flock to it. Um, and what they've done for years is, is analyze each other's dreams. And this always makes me very nervous. I mean, Freud worried about wild analysis. And, and I've argued to students that, well, be careful which dreams you share. I mean, this is one tiny part of what you're talking about, maybe. Be careful which dreams you share, because some of them are damn supposed to be private. I mean, I've, got, I've had some 
really big dreams. Hillman would say there are no big dreams. Uh, but I've had some bloody big dreams. And for a long time, it was quite clear to me that no, no, those are not for sharing. You do, you do not make these things public. And then, you know, 15, 20 years later, I would be in a situation like this and I would, here's a, I could share this image with you now because it's no, but, but Corbin is, is, would, be, would be adamant about that, about the, 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 the that's what, in a sense what makes it sacred. It, it's not private in that it's mine, but it's, it's in the temenos. There is a sacred precinct, and you have to be, you'd have to choose your friends very carefully who gets in the temple with you, and then maybe nobody, you know, and, 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 and that the violation of that particular boundary, and that, that would, this would lead to some very interesting discussion, there are some boundaries that should not be crossed, and it's very hard to know exactly what those are, but, but that would be one potential danger of the spreading of things which should be private into a public realm, which will then devalue them and demean them and make fun of them. I'm a big believer on ending on time, particularly when a group of people has been so dedicated as to stay through this whole long day. You folks uh, are amazing. I want to thank you all for being here. I want to thank them on the show. Thank you for coming. I just want to honor the extraordinary uh, 20 years of work that Tom Cheatham has done to give us this uh, important vision of the work of Henri Corbin and to open up um, the great richness of the uh, field of Islamic mysticism and its profound contribution uh, to the unity of the prophetic tradition and to an honoring of all traditions of spirit and faith. Thank you, Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.